This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure, again, inviting back Dr. Alex uh, Melamed, who is an Assistant Professor in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at New York Presbyterian Columbia University uh, Medical Center. The reason for this podcast is... Uh, the article titled Association Between Overall Survival and the Tendency for Cancer Programs to Administer Neoadjuvant Chemotherapy for Patients with Advanced Ovarian Cancer, published in JAMA Oncology. So, Alex, again, welcome and thank you so much for your uh, participation in this podcast. Oh, Pedro, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm a great fan of the podcast and it's always a big honor to be on. Well, it's, uh, it's always a joy speaking with you, and uh, also I should say for full disclosure, I am one of the co-authors in this uh, in this manuscript as well. Um, but obviously, this is a, this is a great topic uh, to to discuss, and and one that we always continue to uh, often debate about um, the issue of neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients with advanced ovarian cancer and the impact uh, that it has on 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 outcomes. So. First, uh, as a first question, as we get into uh, some of the background, um, back in 2010, uh, it was uh, Ignaz Vergot who published, obviously, a landmark trial showing that new adjuvant chemotherapy followed by surgery was associated with less morbidity and similar long-term survival rates compared to patients who underwent primary surgery. And that's just a, a little bit over uh, a decade um, we know that nearly half the patients with advanced ovarian cancer undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy rather than primary surgery. So therefore, I'm going to start by the first question. Um, what was the reason as to why you um, decided to perform this study? Yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, you know, and as of course you know, Pedro, since that Rigot study, there have been three additional published randomized trials on the same on the same subject. And as you say, neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the United States has become far more common since that time. And yet, I have not, and maybe it's just my impression, but I have not uh, finished having the sense that it still remains somehow controversial, you know. And 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 I continue to to read opinions in the literature and hear, you know, people who I have a lot of admiration for, um, sort of make the suggestion that that you know that that if we do neoadjuvant chemotherapy too much, right, that, uh, that we might be hurting some people. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, the reason for me to, to do this paper was to really see how, in how, how, whether we could measure using evidence from, you know, real world practice, from day-to-day -day practice rather than from randomized trials, whether we could measure what the impact of, um, of neoadjuvant chemotherapy was. Yeah, and, and definitely we want to get into uh, some of the details on, on your strategy. And, and I think that uh, that's a great point that you bring up with regards to what does the real world tell us uh, and, and ultimately what's the impact on patient outcomes. So then to that point, um, obviously this is a study with a, a significant number of patients, and we'll talk a little bit about that in, in, uh, in a while. Um, you used the, the National Cancer uh, Database, um, and uh, what were the inclusion uh, criteria for this particular study? 
Yeah, so, you know, the National Cancer Database um, is a very, very large database. Uh, the way it's collected is uh, cancer centers in the United States, which are certified by the Commission on Cancer, they're required uh, to have cancer-level tumor registries, and they're required to share their data with the National Cancer Database that then aggregates that data and, you know, anonymizes it and makes some of it available for research. So, you know, 70% uh, of all new cancer diagnoses in America are included, which is a large number. And we tried to make this study uh, on purpose very broadly representative of uh, patients in the United States who are treated for ovarian cancer. So we tried to um, minimize the exclusion criteria in order to sort of increase the generalizability of this study because generalizability is one of the great advantages of population-based studies uh, or real-world studies as compared to, you know, randomized trials, which are always conducted in, in centers and amongst patients who do not resemble the general population. Um, and so the inclusion criteria was that we included uh, patients who had stage 3C or 4 epithelial ovarian cancer, um, who had had that cancer pathologically confirmed, who had received treatment uh, at the center that had you know, that was reporting um, their data. Um, and they had to be treated in a center that did, on average, at least one case of uh, of ovarian, of advanced ovarian cancer per year, uh, which of course is a very small number and a number I think that raises eyebrows. Um, but the reason that we, the reason that we, we had to have any number at all was, you know, for our methodology, you know, the, the cancer center or the cancer program where the patient was treated had to do enough cases where we could, you know, at least say something about how in general they tended to treat ovarian cancer. So we had to, you know, we couldn't, do places that, you know, only treated one case in the whole study period. But in general, we didn't want to exclude the low volume places because, you know, uh, for better or for worse, many, many women in the United States receive ovarian cancer care at low volume centers. Yeah, so and I'm and I'm glad you highlighted that because that was uh, one of the uh, points that was brought up when we had the discussion about the manuscript with uh, um, our uh, fellows in in the journal and and uh, and certainly exemplifies the entire broad global um, population as a whole uh, in uh, in the United States. Uh, so I uh, I think it's important that that you highlighted that. Um, now, one of the other things also I wanted to ask you is that um, you you define two. Um, periods, two study periods. Can you tell us as to what those study periods were and, and why? Yeah, so the so kind of the whole the the methodologic kind of impetus for this study was um, a realization that I think a lot of us share, which is, you know, if you just compare people in the real world who are chosen, selected by their, you know, treating providers or, you know, share, have shared decision-making or however it happens. If you choose people who receive new adjuvant chemotherapy uh, or, or we might even just say who receive chemotherapy as their first treatment and you, and you compare their outcomes to people who receive surgery as their first treatment for advanced ovarian cancer, um, we know that those are going to be very different populations of people. And it's my assertion that using data sources like the National Cancer Database or even claims data that, you know, those groups of patients are so different that no matter 
matter what kind of statistical models you use to try to adjust for their differences, that you're always going to get a biased, a biased estimate of the treatment effect of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. It will always look worse in terms of overall survival than it really is because it's always a group of people who have more extensive disease and who have a poorer um, prognosis to begin with that are selected to get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So instead of focusing on that variation, that patient level variation, the whole insight of this study was to say, well, we know that in 2010, um, this randomized trial that was highly impactful uh, was published. And we also know, or we thought from sort of personal experience and from having looked at the data, that this evidence was not absorbed um, equivalently by every cancer program. But some cancer programs, when they, you know, when the docs there saw the Vergoat evidence, really believed it and seemed to respond to it and change their practice, whereas other cancer centers, um, you know, remained skeptical. And the, the idea was that that source of treatment variation, that whether you went to a cancer center in, you know, after Vergoat that, you know, was a neoadjuvant chemotherapy believer or a center that, you know, really thought, you know, we better wait and should keep probably doing as much primary surgery as possible, that that source of treatment variation was likely to be less confounded than the patient level variation. And so this study really tries to capture that and tries to use that sort of natural experiment, if you will, to infer what the real world effect of more neoadjuvant chemotherapy use was. So we divide time into two periods, so pre-Vergoat, so that's patients who were uh, diagnosed uh, in 2004 to 2009, and post-Vergoat, which is patients who were uh, diagnosed in 2010 through 2015. And we, we, we essentially, we divide, first we divide time, and then the other thing that we do is we divide centers. So we identify a group of centers who had a large change in their practice uh, from before to after Vergoat, and another group of centers that seem to minimally change their practice. And so then we get, you know, these two groups, one that maintains their practice the same over these time periods. They sort of serve as a control. And then we have another group of hospitals that really increases their use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy over that same time period. Perfect. So then that brings us to the next question. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, uh, anyone that, that, that knows you uh, obviously knows your, your talents with regards to uh, knowledge and, and uh, expertise with trial design and, and the statistical analysis. So the first uh, question regarding those specifics is uh, you did case mix adjustments. Uh, tell us what that is and why did you do it? Yeah, so we so the first place where we use that and probably the most important was we were trying to find hospitals that were doing different things in terms of their use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy following the publication of Vergoat and that they were administering neoadjuvant chemotherapy at different rates, not because they were seeing different types of patients, but because they had different tendency practice, right? So what we, what we did is we essentially um, calculated 
a case mix adjusted measure of how much neoadjuvant chemotherapy they were giving. And how does that work? Well, so we essentially build a model, in this case, a logistic regression model that uses a number of patient tumor and hospital level factors that we think are likely to be associated with receiving neoadjuvant chemotherapy. We fit this model and then we use that model to estimate what we approximate should be each patient's probability of having received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, right? And then what we do is in each one of the cancer programs, we sum up, we look at the patients that were actually treated there, we sum up the pro those probabilities, right? And that gives us a measure of what the expected number of patients ought to have been who did in fact receive new adjuvant chemotherapy. And then we compare that expected number of patients with the actual observed number of patients who actually received new adjuvant chemotherapy. And so that measure, that difference or that ratio between the observed cases of new adjuvant chemotherapy and the expected uh, number of cases of new adjuvant chemotherapy um, is a, is a is a measure for, or we, we think it's a measure for hospitals' tendency to use this treatment independent of the patients that they're seeing. Very well. So then now, um, our next question, and some of these questions are from directly from our fellows. Is, uh, this one comes from Ceci Darin, um, also specifically talking about uh, another element of the methodology, categorizing cancer programs um, as high and low users of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, how did you match cancer programs? That is her uh, specific question. Yeah, so so we well, so so the way we did this in, in practice is so we looked in the period after Vergoat and we looked at cancer centers and we did this we calculate the calculated these case mix adjusted rates if you will of cancer therapy administration and so we basically categorized cancer centers initially based on their practice after the publication of Vergoat, and we categorize them as either high users of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, that is those that used it more often than expected based on the patients that they saw, or low users, which were those that used neoadjuvant chemotherapy less often based on the patients that they saw. And then we said, but we're, we're, what we're looking for amongst all these hospitals or cancer programs that became high or low users were looking for the ones that were similar prior to the publication of Vergoat and then became either high or low users, right? And so after identifying a hospital as either a high or a low user in the period after Vergoat, we then used a matching technique to match each high user to one low using program based on their practice preceding Vergoat. And we matched just on two factors, on how often they tended to use neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to the publication of Vergoat and also how many patients they saw a year in that same period. And so after we did that matching, some hospitals dropped out because they were dissimilar. And we had a group of 332 hospitals that looked very similar prior to Vergoat and then whose practice in terms of the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy diverged. One of the interesting things I'll point out uh, that I was very, very happy with with this methodology is other than how these hospitals adopted neoadjuvant chemotherapy, they looked very similar, both in the 
pre-Virgoat and the post-Virgoat period, these two groups of hospitals saw very similar patients uh, with, you know, similar insurances, similar ages, similar histologic distribution, similar uh, stage distribution. And even though we hadn't adjusted for any of those things, they appeared very similar, which supports this idea that we had really found a national experiment. The patients were really getting neoadjuvant at a higher or lower probability simply because of the practice preferences of the cancer programs that they were going to. That's great. And uh, so then now, Alex, let's talk about um, the primary objective and the secondary outcomes that uh, were evaluated in the study. Yeah, so the, the primary objective of this study was to really look at how using neoadjuvant chemotherapy frequently would impact um, long-term survival. And sort of, you know, we decided, we decided that we would pick a very specific and kind of clinically relevant measure of long-term survival. So we decided to look at median survival as the measure. And because there might be still some small residual differences uh, between these hospitals, instead of just looking at crude median survival, we looked at what we called standardized median survival, which was median survival adjusted for all of those patient level and tumor level factors that we, that we use in case mix adjustment. Perfect. So now, before we get into the results, uh, one more point that I wanted uh, to see if uh, if you can just uh, elaborate a little bit more with regards to uh, the methodology. Um, you explaining your analytical approach, uh, particularly uh, interested in the difference in difference design. Uh, there are many who are not familiar with what that means when you say difference in difference design. Can you just uh, tell us what that is and why did you use it? Yeah, so the idea here is that um, we're, we're, we're treating people being um, people, we're treating sort of what happens in, in these hospitals over time as this exposure of interest, right? And so essentially, but we're trying to sidestep this problem of 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 um you know selection bias and unmeasured confounding right and so instead of um, doing the usual things that observational studies do, which is just comparing patients who got one thing to patients who got another thing. What we're doing in the analysis is we're saying, look, we're going to look at how the how outcomes, and in this case, let's say median survival, evolved over time, over the same time period in one group of hospitals where practice remained the same, and in another group of hospitals where practice changed. And then we're going to look and we're going to see whether there's any difference in the evolution of those outcomes over time. And we think that if there is a difference, then it's very likely to be attributable to this change in practice. And if there's no difference, then it probably means that this change in practice does not affect the outcome. Excellent. So now let's get on to the highlights. What were the results of the study? Yeah, so, so the results of the study, so in terms of the primary outcome, which is median, median overall survival, what we found was that both in hospitals which were 
um, which, which were, we call them low users. So those in which practice did not change over time, which, you know, used neoadjuvant chemotherapy in about 20% of patients before and about 20% of patients after her goat. In those hospitals, median survival improved uh, by almost six months. And then in the other set of hospitals, the ones that increased, that almost doubled their use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy from, from 20% to about 40%, that in those hospitals, median survival over this period also improved, and it improved by just over six months. And those quantities were not statistically significantly different from each other. So the conclusion in terms of the primary outcome of median survival was that you know, treatment in a hospital that, you know, uh, uses, uh, you know, uses a lot of neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, leads to similar median survival as treatment in a hospital that uses not very much. But now, Pedro, this is the interesting part. In terms of our secondary outcomes, which were the six-month mortality, so your chance of dying within six months of diagnosis, and your one-year mortality, those numbers improved significantly more in the hospitals which adopted neoadjuvant chemotherapy mm -hmm. than in hospitals that did not. Well, and, that's, uh, and that actually is a, it's a very interesting point that you highlight, uh, and, and it's an excellent segue to my next question, because uh, this one actually comes from Emma Allison, our, our fellow from Australia. And, and she asked, you know, immediate postoperative mortality was halved in the units with an increase in neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy. So her question is, are, are we still using too little neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Should hospitals be pushing for higher rates of use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think it's hard for my study to answer that question directly, right? Because I'm really only studying what happened in the world, and it's hard to know what might have happened, right? One of the important points about a study like this, right, is it's theoretically, if, you know, where if the assumptions that I'm making are correct, it's measuring a real causal effect but it's not measuring a causal effect that is what's called an average causal effect, which is what a randomized trial measures. This measures what is sometimes called a local average treatment effect. And what does that mean? Well, it's amongst the particular patients who were shifted from primary surgery to new adjuvant chemotherapy because of the treatment preferences of the, of the centers that treated them, we're measuring the effect in those patients. Those patients clearly had meaningful benefit in terms of early mortality. That does not mean that it's true that if we, you know, doubled neoadjuvant chemotherapy use, that we would get the same response to it, right? Because presumably the patients that are the best candidates for neoadjuvant are being selected by these users, by these high users to use neoadjuvant. But I guess I, what I would say is, yeah, I, I worry that particularly Um, particularly low-volume centers that are using a lot of primary debulking surgery, that patients are being needlessly hurt at those centers. Yeah, very, very interesting uh, uh, point. And, uh, and, and I'm sure certainly that will raise a lot of, uh, of uh, responses from, from the uh, audience that is listening, uh, because obviously then there, there's a lot of opinions about this topic. And then I think that this, this, is, uh, this next question reflects that. And th this one's from Natalia Rodriguez. 
um, that I think the, the question is always uh, reflective here at this point of, of a certain group in the, in the room whenever this topic comes up. Her question is, she says, um, National Cancer Database uh, assures, assures us that uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy is non-inferior to primary cytoreductive surgery and advanced ovarian cancer in this study, and, and certainly, obviously, from the prospective studies as well. But her point is, there are many factors that contribute to these results. Remember, surgeon skill, fellow training, number of high-complexity surgery uh, perform at those centers. Uh, how do you take that into consideration? And, you know, it, it gets back to the, you know, the, the better the surgeon, the, 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 the better the outcome. And, and, of course, obviously, there, there may be some truth to that. But um, how, how do you address that point? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we all know that what happens in the operating room matters, and I think we all know that 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 volume matters, and it's not just about the surgeons, right? It's also about the surgeon's environment, right? Like uh, the the capacity of the center to to um, rescue a patient uh, who has a complication, right? These things, of course, matter, particularly for perioperative outcomes, and you know, maybe matter for long term cancer outcomes. Um, and I'm not denying any of that at all um I, but i guess i would say that for my you know i'm i'm for 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 my time in this field which admittedly it ha it hasn't been too long my concern is that this um focus on our own abilities right as the thing that is the most important in this set of questions has really led us astray right because the fact of the matter is, right, most women with ovarian cancer in the world and in the United States are not receiving care at super centers with super surgeons, right? Most of them are getting care somewhere within driving distance of their house. Uh, and that's, frankly, I think where most of them want to be getting care, whether we like it or not. And so focusing on what kinds of results might be achieved at a very non-representative set of centers as the thing that we think is the most important in advanced ovarian cancer upfront surgery, to me, seems misguided, right? So I think that Again, like the whole point of this kind of study is to be able to say something that is generally true. And I think generally speaking, right, using more neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the United States has improved uh, near-term perioperative outcomes and has reduced early mortality in, in, um, in ovarian cancer patients. Um, are there places that could get away with using less neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Of course there are. Um, I just don't think that we have any proof yet that those places are really benefiting anyone, right? But surely places where the surgery is delivered at a higher standard and where the perioperative care is better will have better outcomes with primary debulking surgery. Very well. So now, um, Alex, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about, um, you highlight in that the, one of the strengths of the study that should be considered and what makes the study unique is uh, that you evaluated you know, patient-level factors versus cancer program practice patterns. Can you expand uh, on this topic? Um, yeah, so I think the big strength of this study, right, is that most studies that 
have been done with these kinds of data. Um, compare, you know, patients who get neoadjuvant chemotherapy to patients that get primary to bulking surgery. And, you know, it, when you do that with data, a data set like the National Cancer Database, that does not have any good measure of the extent of disease other than stage, which we all know is a very crude measure, right? Like there's very different people with stage four disease and very different patients with stage three C disease, right? So it doesn't have any good measure of extent of disease and doesn't have any good measure of functional status, right? It doesn't, in that kind of data set, if you compare patients who get, uh, uh, who get neoadjuvant chemotherapy to patients who get primary to bulking surgery, you are measuring that unmeasured confounding. You're measuring the, the association between having more cancer and dying and the association between uh, having worse functional status and dying. And then you're attributing it to the treatment that the patient got, right? And there's no way around that. No propensity score method around that. No multivariable model way around that. That's just an inherent bias in that kind of analysis. I think what's what I what, what's different about our paper is it does not look at the patient level treatment assignment at all. It tries to infer what the what the effect of this treatment is by looking at the by looking at differential adoption of this treatment between centers. And in doing so, I think sidesteps one of the, you know, biggest pitfalls in uh, in in uh, comparative effectiveness and uh, comparisons between these treatments. And now, Alex, if, if you were to say, what are some of the limitations that you do recognize about the study? Yeah. Oh, that's that. that so I think that's a great point. So you know, like any like any you know study, you know, there are assumptions that you have to make in order to interpret its results. Uh, you know, um, as as related to an actual causal treatment effect, right? Um, and so the assumptions in this kind of study, the big important assumption, um, is usually referred to as the assumption of parallel trends or non differential trends. And what that means is, you know, what we assume when we do this kind of study is that outcomes, if these two centers had not, or these two groups of centers had not diverged in terms of their practice, right, that the outcomes in these centers would have evolved in similar ways over time, right? So if both, and, and that's an assumption that is that the, that's an assumption that's not provable or disprovable. You can evaluate its plausibility, but there are lots of potential threats to the validity of that assumption, right? One of the big limitations is we don't, there's a lot of other treatments um, uh, or treatment variations for ovarian cancer that is that are not measured in in um, in the national cancer database right and so if for example in addition to developing differential practices with respect to new adjuvant chemotherapy these centers develop differential practices with respect to some other kind of treatment that has an important impact on survival that could bias the data right so that I think is probably the biggest limitation of this study yeah and, and things like uh, i would imagine like maintenance therapy and and uh and and use of different approaches to secondary uh, potent potentially uh, right secondary site reduction potentially you know ip use right um uh, uh high tech exactly. um you know you could you could imagine a whole number of things the one thing is that for for 
for, for it to be true that, in fact, neoadjuvant chemotherapy is, in fact, inferior to primary debulking, for, and that that effect is hidden by some source of confounding, it would have to also be true, right, that these centers that adopted neoadjuvant chemotherapy um, also adopted some additional beneficial treatment in excess of the adoption of that treatment of centers that did more primary debulking surgery, right? So that would have to be true for, 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 that, for, 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 for that bias to be present. And I guess I will re leave it to the listeners to think about whether they think that's a likely, whether that's likely to be true or not in the real world. Very well. So just a, a few more questions, and some of these came directly from our fellows. This is from Ceci Darín in uh, Argentina and Eric Estrada in uh, Guatemala. They, they ask, uh, and I think this is a reflective of everyone's uh, uh, thoughts as they listen to, to this topic. Um, what would you tell those who remain skeptical of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, um, given these results uh, that certainly match those of other for um, previous randomized trials? Yeah, I mean, I think my position on this issue is now, like, there have been four randomized trials done in very different settings, right, that have very concordant results, right? And those results have been well described in the Cochrane Review, right, which are that, you know, long-term outcomes seem to be very similar, but Uh, you know, perioperative complications, perioperative mortality, and short-term outcomes are superior after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I think one of the arguments that was made is, well, you know, there's a conflict between the observational data and the randomized data, and so I'm holding out because I'm not sure what that's about. And I hope that this study might convince people that actually the observational data are much more harmonious with the randomized trials uh, than, than you might have thought if you had looked at some of the studies that kind of ignored this unmeasured confounder problem. And so my position is, I guess, if you're not convinced that in, in the world at large, right, let's, let's exclude the super centers that are, that, are, that are, you know, participating in the trust trial, but in the world outside of those centers, if you're not convinced that neoadjuvant chemotherapy produces equivalent long-term and better short-term results, I'm not sure that you're convincible, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so, like, maybe we should just stop arguing about it, you know? Uh, but, but, but for the folks that, the, for the folks that are, you know, going to write the next set of guidelines, right, um, I would say that the evidence is pretty strong that in most settings in the world, right, people might consider neoadjuvant chemotherapy as the default approach for most or many patients with advanced ovarian cancer. And then they might consider primary debulking surgery as something to do in special cases. Uh, whereas I feel like traditionally we have, you know, kind of thought about Uh, the care of ovarian cancer in the exact opposite way. Yes. Yeah, so then you, <laughs> of course, you brought up the, the trust trial. Uh, another question from Sarah Nasser in Germany. Uh, she says, of course, without knowing the results of the trust trial, how do you believe those results will impact clinical practice? And I guess we'll have to say, well, if the results come out, matching exactly these results versus a, a benefit for one or the other, I guess. 
Right. Well, I think if the trust trial is negative in terms of showing a benefit for primary surgery, I feel like, you know, um, it feels sort of like a nail into a coffin that's already been nailed up, right? <laughs> um, on, on the other hand, right, if the, if the trust trial shows a benefit, right, I think that's the more interesting situation. If the, if the trust trial shows a benefit for, for, for primary surgery, I think then you get into the, this very interesting question of, okay, well, you have four trials that show no benefit and this kind of real world data that I think also shows no, no benefit, right? And then in a very specialized trial, right? The trust trial is, you know, extremely ungeneralizable intentionally, right? Like the trust trial is, is designed intentionally to identify only centers where a very, very high standard of cytoreductive care is being administered, very high volume centers, centers that have very high rates of uh, no gross residual disease, centers that are going to submit themselves to evaluation by the study, by the study organizers, right? So, and you know, there are a small non-representative group of centers that mm -hmm. probably have a fairly non-representative group of patients, right? So, if you see a benefit in those centers, but not in, you know, all the other centers that participated in all the other randomized trials, right, then the then the answer is probably something like maybe in some hands, right, in certain places, primary cytoreductive surgery is indeed beneficial, but in kind of in the, in the hands of the masses, right, in the hands of most people, it probably isn't. And that, I think, will be a very, very tricky situation because, you know, um, everyone, you know, every, every surgeon, or I think many surgeons, right, uh, want to think that they are good at doing ovarian cancer surgery and that they're at centers that are fully capable of doing, uh, you know, as good care as anyone else. But in fact, what the data will be suggesting is directly that that is not true, right? <laughs> uh, and I, so I think it will be very hard in that situation to, to reconcile what the data is really telling us with practice because it's inconceivable to me, no matter how positive the trust trial is, that that should mean that everyone in the world, wherever they are, should start doing more primary debulking surgery in the face of, you know, Vergote and, uh, and, and, uh, and the Chorus trial and the Scorpion trial and Onda, right? I just think that's, it's, it's not reasonable to interpret the data that way. Very well. So, Alex, then that brings us to the last question. How do you counsel your own patients with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer? Yeah, so I always let them know that there are, you know, two well-accepted approaches. Um, and I, in general, tell them the results of the four trials that have uh, been published. Um, and, I, you know, there are, in, 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 I would say, in the average patient who has bulky carcinomatosis, you know, it's not subtle. There's a lot of disease, right, um, who I'm not considering giving um, who I'm not considering giving IP chemotherapy to, right? Um, I think for the, for the vast majority, for, for me at least, the majority of those patients, I say, look, I would recommend, uh, I would recommend neoadjuvant chemotherapy because of the benefits in terms of surgical morbidity. Um, but there are others that might tell you something else. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I practice in a big city where they can go and see those, those, those other, other, other doctors. And, and I, you know, I engage in, 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 um, I engage in shared decision making with my patients. Alex Melamed, always a pleasure. Thank you so, so much for 
um, <laughs> accepting our invitation and uh, congratulations on this really um, excellent study. And once again, congratulations uh, on uh, all your academic achievements and, and your contributions to gynecologic oncology. Always a pleasure. Uh, Pedro, thank you so much for, for having me on and for your interest in our shared work. And uh, I, I, I uh, really look forward to continuing to learn from this excellent podcast.